The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. Amen. Good morning, Story City. My name is Stephanie, and I have the pleasure of reading scripture with you this morning. So if you could please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to be reading 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to the court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Stephanie. All right, if you guys have been with us, 1 Corinthians does not hold back its punches. So real quick, I'll introduce myself and then um, we'll jump into this. So um, for a couple things, one, um, there's a group that's already traveling right now, I think you probably know this, um, to Israel, so they're going to be gone for the next 10 days. So you'll have me this week and next week. So... um, um, so I'm part of uh, Story City's what they call ELT, Executive Lead Team. So we have two campuses, one here and one in Granada Hills. So what I do is I'm a vocational, that means I have a job outside of the church um, that I do all day long, every day. And I also sit on the ELT, which helps guide and think through how we as an organization continue to move forward. Make sense? All right. And my wife is on that trip. She's going to be gone for 10 days. We have seven children. The dino nuggies are flowing like water at the moment. <laughs> Hairs were brushed today. The bath was done. We're on fire, but check in later in the week. All right. Hey, um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to jump right in. Um, I'm going to take a little bit different approach through this, so just allow me a little bit of time to get to this passage. Um, and also, I'm going to tell a few stories. And the stories are true. They're also not true. I've taken several stories and mashed them together. I've changed the names. So if you walk up to me and be like, is that? I'm going to be like, I don't know. (laughs) You'll never know. Okay? But I wanted to make stories real so that it's less theoretical. Does that make sense? All right. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get going. God, we just thank you for today. God, we don't need more of me. We need more of you And yet I'm the one here speaking, which says that we need to be careful with our words. Help me to be careful with my words. Help us to be collectively listening to what you have us to say in this passage. And that those would listen well and ascertain the truthfulness of what I want to say in your name. Amen. All right. Ultimate clickbait. I'm going to tell stories, right? Okay. Let me jump into one here. So I want to introduce to you a little boy named Johnny. Is that his real name? No. He's one and a half years old. He's the youngest of three. He has two older brothers and sisters that are not much older. They live with their mom, 
and whatever boyfriend is currently in her life. At times, they've lived in a car on the streets of Los Angeles, other times in a dirty apartment or whatever hotel they happen to find themselves in. Their mom's a drug addict, hooked on meth and fentanyl, and probably will be till the day she dies. And she disappears for days at a time. Johnny, siblings, help take care of him and look for whatever food might exist in the locations, and at times even wander the streets looking for leftover sandwiches discarded, or if they're up to it, run into a 7-Eleven, grab something, and race out the door before they're caught. Johnny has been exposed to both meth and fentanyl while he was in his mom's womb, and the impact to his life is real. Now, before you hate his mom, let me tell you a little bit about her. Their mom is seemingly at the control of several men in her life who feed her an endless supply of narcotics to control and take power over her. The relationships are seemingly endless parades of beatings, drugs, and artificial lugs, uh, love. These men use her, sell her, trade her, threaten her to accomplish whatever goal they have. Her life expectancy is probably a lot more than 30 years old. She doesn't really have much hope beyond this. And it was in these circumstances that little Johnny found something out. He discovered something at one and a half years old. He found out that when he was the hungriest, if he picked up and swallowed little rocks, it made his stomach feel full. And so he would fill his stomach with rocks to hoard off that feeling of hunger on a daily basis. Now, none of this would be discovered until his mom was arrested for soliciting an undercover police officer, and he and his siblings entered the Los Angeles foster system. During his first medical exam ever, they would discover the rocks, help remove them safely, and provide a nutritional diet that one day would hope he would become a healthier little boy. First of all, welcome to our major at Story City Church, foster care and adoption. Now, if we want the pretty stories, we can do those. But these are the real stories and part of this. Second, I think this story leaves us with complex feelings. The one I want to talk about and focus on today is that thought that probably is ringing through your head that is, that's not fair. That's not right. Something is off. There's an injustice being done here. We can feel it to our core. We have no idea how to solve it in one sense, but we know that there's an injustice being done here. Our heart and our mind looks at the circumstances of both the child and the mother and recognizes that fairness and justice have not been done. And actually, I think this is what Paul is talking about in this passage. And if you give me a moment, I'll show you how I think what Paul is going for and how we view justice come together. And I'm using this as the example because I want it to become real and tangible for us. Does that work? All right, now that everyone's slightly sad and a little depressed, but realistic, I want to walk through this for a moment. My first two points, if you guys have this, I rarely make one of these, so congratulations, you have one. Keep it. Ten years from now, it'll be worth something, because it's the only one maybe that I may produce and may become valuable um, or, or become worthless. I have two points I want to make that are regardless of whether you are a follower of Jesus, just two universal points I believe are true. 
One, first one is we all seek justice. And I don't just mean this room. If you walk out of this room and walk down the street and ask someone, you would find that there's some sort of form of justice that they believe is important and right. If you left the state and traveled overseas, you would come across this idea over and over again that uh, justice matters, right? We want right to triumph, right? We want, in our movies, think about this in our movies and books, the crime is always committed in the first 20 minutes, typically, right? And then the next one hour and 30 minutes of the film is the good guy or good gal, bringing that person to justice, right? And they sometimes do it within the law, right? But there's times they do it outside the law because the law can't possibly help, right? We call that vigilante justice. And frankly, to be honest with you, it kind of scratches an itch for us, doesn't it? We kind of like when they go, you know what, they got what was coming to them. This internal cry for justice is actually one of the reasons I personally am not an atheist, I believe that one of the proof points that I've been created is that no matter where I go, there is a universal desire to see justice done, to see rights made wrong. Now, we don't always agree on what that standard is, but there is this universal cry of our hearts that says justice must be done, and it leaves us awkward when it doesn't happen. There's this unmet thing in our heart that says something's off. The movie's not done. Are they going to get away with that? It's not just a societal construct, which some say. Well, it's just us as a society. The problem is you go to any society and you look and you start to see there's this value of life. There's a value of relationships. There's a value of things. And justice is interwoven into that. My sister does Bible translations in a remote village in Papua New Guinea and has for several years, a decade now. And guess what? Justice matters. You go to the gangs of LA here. Something's done against somebody in the gang. Justice matters. There has to be some sort of recourse that we all want in our hearts. Here's point number two. We all, are you ready for this? We all avoid justice, personally, and we want mercy. Let me explain that for a second. In the contrast to the point above, and often an uncomfortable thought, we're not always on the right We're not always on the side of good and right. Sometimes we too are the ones who have hurt others. Now, you can talk about degrees of hurt, but in reality, we've all hurt others. We've been the ones who have done the wrong. And here's where we begin to encounter guilt and shame, right? Here's where our brains, our minds, and our heart disconnect. We sense that others should be pursuing justice against us sometimes. For the list of crimes that we've done. But it's funny how we talk about this, right? When we talk about others, right? They're evil. They're terrible. When we talk about ourselves, right? It was a little indiscretion. It's just one of my toxic traits. I was in a dark place. It was just a mistake. But whatever term we use, it's the same, right? It's the moment in our lives where we have been the one doing the injustice to someone else. And in those moments, we actually don't want the hammer of justice, right? Just a moment ago, we said, boy, we want justice done for this moment until we find ourselves on the other side, and then we don't actually want justice done. We want something different. We want the opposite. We want mercy. Mercy says, how can this be reconciled? How can this be fixed? We want as a parent, we want our parents to say to us, it's okay when we've been caught in a lie, We want our significant others to take us back when we've spoken unkindly or hit them. 
or cheated on them or spoken in a way that was not right. We want our employers to say it's okay when we failed. We want our friends to say it's okay when we, sh- when we don't live out a commitment or they find us gossiping behind their back, right? We want our kids to say it's okay when we as parents have failed, right? At the end of the day, we want to be given a pass. We want mercy. Our quest for justice typically is one directional, right? If you've hurt me, I want justice. But if I've hurt you, I want mercy. And I'm not even talking about those who follow Jesus. I'm saying that's universal, I believe. We want that. Here's what's interesting. Observations. I believe that left to ourselves, even our collective selves, the pursuit of justice eventually settles on one word, and that word is power. We either want the power to bring about the justice we think is correct, right? Or we want the power so that our story of hurt can be known and broadcast. This is why I believe if you look through history, you see the weak rise up so often, right? Overpower those who have hurt them. Now here's what's interesting, right? They always, the, the, the revolutions are always these lovely moments of just reconciliation, right? No, because as soon as they get power, what happens? French Revolution, anyone? You've got guillotines being made to make sure that you bring about what you believe is just. And here's what's fascinating to me, right? Left to ourselves and left to our own quest for justice, we typically do a pretty bad job. We miss on either side, right? Others are let go that should not. We can't possibly bring all justice correctly or we over-index, right? We become brutal in it. It's not a matter just to say, hey, they punched me, I want to punch them back, right? They punched me, I want to punch them back and slash the tires of their car, right? You just a little bit more, just a little bit more on that. And then they come back, and all of a sudden, we continue to escalate until we've lost control. This quest for power so often drives our view of how do we reconcile and how do I deal with differences, right? I want to accumulate power to myself so that I can either administer justice or enforce the mercy that I want. That's why racial reconciliation across the ages, across the countries is so hard because it's in reality an issue of power. How do we reconcile hurts? How do we reconcile these things? It's why social media has turned into a wonderful battleground to fight and win others to our cause. That's why we rejoice when others are banned, reinstated, new platforms are dedicated, because my personal views, my view of justice is either making headway on the battleground or it's losing on the battleground, and I need it to win in order for justice, the way I view it, to be done. That's why justice, and sometimes it's not enough. We want our pound of flesh too, right? We want to see our foes destroyed. It's why gossip is so attractive, right? Because we want to see someone's reputation hurt. We don't just want the issue reconciled. We want to win. That's why we love to click on the comments section in a juicy article to see who's getting blasted. It's why forgiveness is fun to talk about but really hard to do. Similarly, can I tread carefully somewhere? 
The word victim is a good word. Victimization I want to talk about. That's the mindset that gets stuck in a spot that says, there's no hope. My cause will never be known, right? I will always be fill in the blank. If you peel below that, there's a despair that comes in. And I understand that. I'm not even speaking about this from an unempathetic way. I'm just speaking about it from a spec that says, Isn't that still in one sense a desire to say, I wish I had more power so that my story and my my pain could be seen and heard? I'm not saying that's even wrong. I'm just recognizing that these are things that tempt us. And at the core of reconciliation, whether we're the hurt or the hurters, is this question of power. We not only want to be the judge, but we want to be the jury. We want to be the executioner. And humans have done a horrible job of managing all those pieces in history. Would you agree? All right. So here's my pivot. Without God's view of justice, we end up in a power-centered view. Does that make sense? Whether you're on the losing side of that power or you're on the winning side of that power, you end up in a power struggle for justice. And justice tends to overshoot. This is why God's view and approach to justice frees us from this personal and frankly exhausting quest for power. Does that make sense? So does God say anything about this? What is God's view of justice? Isn't that really what Paul's getting at here? How do we understand what to do when we've been wronged? Paul's not saying, if you read it, Paul didn't say, hey, I can't believe you're not getting along. I can't believe there's disputes among you. He goes, of course there is. But what are you, how are you handling that? What are you doing about those disputes? Are you seeking power Or are you seeking God's approach to how we deal with reconciliation? How we deal with hurts? Does that make sense? That's my thesis. If you don't agree with it, that's great. But I believe, at its core, justice without God seeks power. So here's number three on your little handout. God's way of justice lays out a very different approach. And it helps us relinquish this personal quest for power. So here's four truths about God's view of justice. I'm going to read them to you. Actually, there's five. It's not on your chart. This is, this is just, you've got to flip it over, write some more numbers, whatever you want. Four truths of God's justice. Five truths. I wrote four and I have five. That's my numbering ability. All right. Isaiah 30, 18 says this, For the Lord is a God of justice. God cares deeply about the injustices of the world and cares deeply for those who have been hurt. He actually says, I'm a God of injustice. He doesn't say, I like it. He actually says, this is who I am, right? It's part of his major. When you look at him and you think about what God says he is, he is a God of justice. He cares deeply about this. And I'll tell you what, walking next to someone who is hurting, who has been hurt badly, this is a great truth to remind them. Your God cares deeply about this moment which then begs the next question, so what is he doing about it? That's the harder question, isn't it? Here's number two. God's justice is active even when we cannot see it, and injustice will be dealt with. That's God's promise. And let me read you this. Psalm 37 says this. Be still before the Lord and wait what? I'm sorry. Patience really does not. It's not fun. Wait patiently for him. Why? Because he is not caring? 
Or is he acting and we just can't see it? That's a question. Fear not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out his evil desires. In a little while, the wicked will be no more. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes their teeth. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that their day is coming. Here's what's interesting. We don't have a God that doesn't see injustice. He actually cares deeply about it. Have you ever thought about a God who laughs? But not the laugh of humor. The laugh of like, how stupid can people be? to think that they can hurt my children, my creation, and get away with it. God is a God of action in this, and there's hope and power for those who've been hurt. Psalm 82 says this, God has taken his place in divine counsel in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. God places himself in the middle and says, I'm the ultimate judge. How long will you judge unjustly and so partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Hey, I wonder why Josh picked that example early. Let's come, we might be coming back to that. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Arise, O God, and judge the earth. Here is a God of action again. And he, in this case, he invites us into living out this. Here's the fourth observation about God's justice. The gospel which is the Son of God coming to earth to die for our sins, is the greatest expression of God's justice. Do you guys hear that? The gospel is the greatest expression of God's justice. Let me explain that to you. Injustice will be paid for, either with our own lives or on the cross with Jesus. See, we've all done wrong, and we've hurt and rebelled against God. We've sit in danger of our own judgment. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, which means, hey, the payment for that, the outcome, the penalty, if you were to go before the judge with your list of crimes, the payment of that is your own life. And God's been incredibly fair to explain that. But we've all chosen to do our own thing. Except when it came to pronouncing the sentencing in the court of God, Jesus stood up on the behalf of those who trust him. And said, I will take the punishment so that they may go free. So do you see God's justice here? And his mercy colliding together at the gospel? God loves us. God's love for us was so great, he provided a way that we cannot have to bear what was due us. This is central to the Bible, right? The broken world in desperate need of justice is offered a way back to God through the death of Jesus. So where is God's justice seen the most? It's actually at the cross because it brings the hurt and the hurters to the cross for the solution and the answer. Number five, God calls us to pursue his justice, not our own. Micah 6, 8 says this, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Question mark. Hey, I wonder what he requires of me action word, do justice, not love it, not appreciate it, not sit and stare at it, not cheer from the sidelines, do justice, action word again, love what? Mercy. There are those two things combined together. What do you see there? The gospel? And walk humbly with your God. All action words followed by something impossible to do without God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Hosea 12, 6 says this, So you, by the help of God, there's the help, 
Return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Fantastic. This is easy to do. Now that he's laid it out, I just get to try to figure out how in my lifetime I get to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. It's not easy. So often we need to be reminded of our own story of justice, that's the gospel, so that we may turn and view correctly the hurt and the conflicts that we're going to encounter in our life. If you do not have the gospel central to yourself, you will not handle conflict well. You will seek power in some way, shape, or form. I'm convinced of that, not because I've seen it in others, because I've seen it in myself. Does that make sense? I'm going to get to something in a second. Paul tells the Corinthians, this is point number three here, or four, four. Paul tells the Corinthians to put the gospel at the center and not power. The Corinthians were coming out of a pagan culture, a number of different topics. Corinth is about status and about power, about maintaining their rights, keeping what was rightfully theirs. It's about arguing to keep and maintain what they believed they had worked so hard to get. So as they come to Christ, as they get new hearts, of course they're bringing old ways of solving problems and organizing their worldview. They must have at the drop of a hat said, well, I'll see you in court then, won't we, to solve their problems. That was what they knew. He reminds them that their unity in the gospel was primary. Verse 7, actually, all these things where he says, don't you realize that you're already defeated? Why, rather be, why, why not rather be wrong or defrauded? Do you see how he flips it on his head? What if? What if you were wronged? What if you were defrauded? What if you didn't get your way? But instead, the gospel, mercy, and grace are what's shown. Can you imagine an argument that instead ended with, I'll see you in court, ends with, I see we disagree, but both of us are committed to unity in the gospel, and it's more important than me than getting what I think is right. I'm not saying crimes, okay? Well, I can see you murdered my wife, but um, I'm going to let this one slide. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when we clash, when we have disagreements, when we, when we bump into these challenging pieces. And doesn't that smell more like Jesus, who gave up his power and rights to serve others, even at great cost, didn't he? So isn't he actually asking us to follow who Jesus is? Here's a third observation from this, and this is a bit of a call to action. Paul shows them that the use of wise people within the church to help them reconcile their disputes helps them keep the gospel at the center while they work to resolve and reconcile whatever the issue is. So we don't put power back in the center. Hey, who in your church is the most powerful? Go find them. Bend all the ears to your view. Go find those who are wise because they're able to keep the gospel at the center and say, how do we resolve this in a way that honors and glorifies God? Church, I'll just tell you something. Paul went directly at this. I'm going to go directly at it too. So if you want to yell at me, fine. I'll just yell at Paul through history and then we can all just yell at Paul at the end of this. We need to get better at this. I believe that while formal lawsuits between us might be rare, it's not the only courts we bring our issues to. 
The court of gossip is a big one. Where we share our beef with someone, but not with the person that hurt us. We seek to align others to our perspective to build a coalition toward our cause where we can dismiss, hurt, or control the other party. Isn't that a quest for power? I want to get people on my side so that I can somehow begin to move in this direction. I think there's several reasons why this is attractive. One, it's what we've learned sometimes. Sometimes you just grew up that way. You're like, I don't know another way to do this, right? I just know how to build a coalition, right? Where are my, where are my conflict avoiders in the room? Like, you guys are like, yeah, we do that well. We know how to work behind the scenes to try to manipulate and control and get what we want through that mechanism. That's not a biblical approach. It may be what we've learned, and I have empathy for that, but that's not good. Where are my conflict lovers, right? Just start yelling, and things happen to go my way. I'm like, of course they do. You sound threatening, Right? Neither one of those are biblical or right. But I understand it's hard to undo those things. And I'm not offering that as a shame. I am offering it, though, as saying, learn God's way. It's much better. It's way harder, too. But it's much better. I'm even going to go after the pious forms of this, right? Can you pray for a situation for me? Really? I will. However... If this is just a way of kind of trying to say something sneaky about someone, I think we need to be careful with those as well. Right? There's something I'm concerned with. Great, have you gone to that person? Well, no. Okay. How can I help you go to that person? The other thing it shows sometimes, I think, is that we don't value the gospel enough. When we recognize and we approach our conflict, we need to remember that we too have been the ones that hurt. We disobeyed God. We've hurt others, and yet we've wanted mercy. And we've wanted that. Instead of hoping we get our rights, the gospel says that I respond in a way that made much of who God is and the gospel more than getting maybe what I wanted. Doesn't mean we can't care about those issues, but where are we focused on this? I'll be honest, I don't always know where the line is, right? Some of you have told stories of things where I said, boy, that's, we need to be careful. That's not good. <laughs> that is a relationship you need to get out of, not figure out how to just let it go. Like, we're not talking about that, right? We're talking about understanding how the gospel plays in this. Paul encourages them indirectly, right, to become one of the wise ones. They have a church full of those who understand biblically how to resolve disputes. If you are someone that uses an all, another means, gossip, power, anger, I'll tell you, Paul's calling you not wise. He is. And we want you to become wise ones who can resolve disputes. If we can't resolve disputes within ourselves in a way that brings glory to God and can step toward hurt, Let's go back to Johnny's little Johnny's story. Isn't that just a lot of conflict in, in his life? I've got one little piece here and then I'll conclude. I want to pick up where we left off on Johnny's story and show you how our commitment to conflict resolution allows us to step toward the great hurt we have around us because we have the gospel to bring, not power. 
We don't have all the power. I can't fix Johnny's story. I can't fix all of that. But I do have the gospel, and I have a God who knows all things, who cares deeply about injustice, who I can pour into those moments more than anything else. Little does Johnny know that a year or so after, he was ultimately adopted and brought out of the foster system. His birth mom overdosed alone on the streets, not five miles from where we stand here, sit here in church. Her life, now discarded, used up, slips away. But it shouldn't be the thought of good she gets what she deserved for all that she's done and how she hurt her children. Our hope is in that last dying moment, she was able to have a sense of clarity and remember a word maybe spoken to her by somebody about the love of Jesus and the ability that while her body and her mind has been entirely trashed in this world, her soul can be safe with God. Maybe this is a modern day thief on the cross, right? Whose last dying breaths are reconciling with God. But what about Johnny? Well, he's now too. The effects of the the drugs on his body are permanent. He stands an inch off the ground in his 50th physical therapy session being told to jump off a one-inch block. And he cries because he knows that his arms don't work fast enough. Unless he sticks the landing perfectly, he's going to face plant. What does he need? Does he need vigilante justice? No, he needs to know that there's a Savior that cares deeply about this life that he will now live that will say that already cares more about his soul. The thing that is most hurt in his life is not his physical body, it's his soul and needing of reconciliation. But the gospel allows that to be brought into all the hurt, all the things that are going to come his way. And it's not just little Johnny, it's all of us. If we can't understand, we will never do a good job of entering into the hurt around us. We will quest for power as we engage our communities, as opposed to saying, how does the gospel bring the power of God to those moments? We will become afraid, we will become exhausted as we try to quest for this, rather than saying, I have no idea. Because little Johnny's hurt is found at the cross. The answer for his hurt is found at the cross, as is his mom's, as is the people that hurt the herders, and the hurting of the hurt of the herders. And we could keep adding the hurt of the hurting the hurting until it all just becomes a giant ball that's so big for us to reconcile, we don't know what to do with it. Church, injustice is not forever. God cares deeply about this. What little Johnny will eventually, hopefully learn to know is that one day my body will be made new. I will be made new because the gospel has brought reconciliation with God. And that while I may live with some things that are challenging in life, I am safe. Church, if you're not good at dealing with conflict, learn from this passage. Learn how God's way of doing things is better. And there's the hope we have, right? I don't want to leave this as sad because there has to be hope for little Johnny. There has to be hope for us. And here's what's interesting, is at the cross, the hurters and the hurtees find themselves there, don't they? The hardest thing sometimes is to say, I'm willing to go to the cross, but I don't want my hurter to find their way there. I want them to pay for their crimes. 
Well, if we look while we're at the foot of the cross, we're not being asked to pay for our crimes. So let's not build these walls around the gospel. All those who come, and it's challenging. I get it. The hurt and the hurter kneeling at the foot of the cross is ultimately our goal. That's where we're going to find it. Church, does this make sense? Is this good? All right. Have I left you sad and depressed? <laughs> Here's what's interesting. Paul went directly at this, and I kind of took that same attention. I was like, how do we go out? He even said, guys, you should be embarrassed about the way you're doing stuff. I didn't quite say that, but I kind of said it with my eyes a little bit, if you watched. So we're going to close. I'll pray real quick here, and I'll pray that we would have this heart for justice, God's heart for justice, and that we, as Paul, would be able to encourage that. God, we thank you for your word that is clear. We thank you for justice. We thank you that you love justice and that you are willing to rescue us from our own hurt that we have caused. I pray that you would bless this church. God, that we, like the Corinthian church, would understand that when we seek power to alleviate what we see as injustice, we find ourselves at odds with you. It says, I am a God of all power. And the gospel is what I want pressed into the hurt. I pray this in your name. Amen.